Good morning. Our reading this morning is from the first chapter of Genesis, and so if we would please stand, as is our custom of respect. Genesis chapter 1, from the beginning there of the chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every kind of bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So reads the word of God, and may the Lord bless the reading of his inspired and infallible word to us. Once again to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we'll be talking about women in the image of God, looking at verses 26 and mainly 27. And this will be a topical message as we talk about this. We'll start out in the book of Genesis to see how it is that God and His Word holds women in high regard. Women in the image of God, Genesis 1, 27. Male chauvinism believes that women are not important because they are not men. Feminism believes that women are not important unless they become like men. Those are just two versions of Satan's lie. It's one lie. He tries through that to through those to corrupt our understanding of God's image in us. With John MacArthur, we proclaim that women are not inferior to men. They simply have a different role. Many people believe the only place of power and influence in society is in a leadership position, assuming it is more fulfilling to lead than to follow. But people in non-leadership roles can be very influential. The notion that the greatest experience in life is to be on top of the pile and control everything is an illusion. This morning, we're going to contrast two concepts, feminism and femininity. Feminism is the lie that women can only be significant if they become like men. Femininity is where women embrace the high calling that God has given them. We're going to see today that as His image bearers, God holds women in high regard and has assigned them an indispensable role in His program. They are indeed His image bearers and God holds women in high regard and has assigned them an indispensable role in His program. That is the biblical view. Feminists, although what they do is they accuse Christians of being misogynistic, which just means hateful to women. But it is the world that is misogynistic. They tell women, on the one hand, that the only way to happiness is if you can succeed in being treated consistently like men. 
And then secondly, how they are indeed misogynistic. As uh, Rebecca McLaughlin writes, Throughout history, the vast majority of babies who have died by abortion before birth or infanticide after birth, and she's thinking there of ancient times in particular when they used to, uh, they would leave babies out if they didn't want the baby, leave them out to die of exposure, and guess which sex typically got left out to die? Girls. She says, the vast majority of babies who died by abortion and infanticide have been girls. This is still true globally today, and it is. And I have to say, you can't be more hateful to women than to kill baby girls. To me, that's the most hateful that anyone can be toward women. And then she goes on, McLaughlin asserts, Christianity isn't against women. It's the greatest movement of women in all of history. And that is indeed true. If you read the Bible and you believe it. Now, Christianity doesn't always get it right, hasn't always gotten it right. There have been times where Christianity has blown it majorly, just like the world. But that doesn't mean that the Bible isn't true. And the Bible stands in how it holds women in high regard. And we have to stand with it and stand on it and hold them in high regard. You look back into the the day of Jesus and the apostles in the Roman world and in the Judaism of that day, women were often treated as second-class citizens. And in much of history, what we find is that male chauvinism, that is, thinking that men are superior to women, that's what I mean by that term, male chauvinism was Satan's primary tool to upend, to turn upside down God's teaching about His image in mankind. But, in recent years, feminism has supplanted it as Satan's primary tool to turn God's teaching upside down. Satan wants to prevent women from being the powerful, effective force that God intends them to be. And what I want to do today, our goal is to show how Scripture holds women in high regard. So first, women are created in God's image. I mean, that's one of the highest things you can say about anyone is that they're created in God's image. Uh, It's not said of the angels, it's not said of any of the rest of creation. It is only said of human beings, men and women are in the image of God. Look again with me, uh, as Sam read from uh, Genesis 1, we'll read again, verses 26 and 27. Here in the, the, the creation account, going day by day, we come to verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, obviously... Uh, They didn't completely understand it back then, the Jews, but God, they're alluding to the fact that he is a trinity. Okay, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Two terms, image and likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And again, he's talking so far of mankind. And then he says, 
of the two sexes, male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This word image means to, to carve out or to cut something. And the, the idea there, and it's used for creating, you know, an image of a person or an animal. And God did that when he created man. Now, God is able to create an image, but it's not for us to worship. We are forbidden from creating images of, of God, for example, because we will worship them, and that is sin. He uses a second word here we saw in verse 26, likeness. And that's real simple. It, not, nothing fancy about it. It just means to be like. And what he's saying is that men and women are in the image of God. They are like God. People are not God, but in many significant ways, they are like God. First, like God, man and, wo- man and woman are persons. And it is our whole person that reflects the image of God. It isn't just a part of it. It's not just our, our body. It's not just our inner man, if you will. Our whole person reflects God's character. Think about just our outer man, if you will. God created our ears because, guess what? He hears. And that help, that's a picture for us to know that our God hears. He's not like idols. He created our eyes because He sees. Again, not like idols. He actually sees. He created our right hand, a symbol of strength, because God possesses all strength. It reflects His strength. We also now turning to the inner man. We have a conscience. We are responsible. We can appreciate beauty, which is something we need because we need to be able to appreciate God's beauty. We can communicate. And we together, men and women, have dominion over the earth. Reformed theologian John Frame adds that everything we are images God. And this includes our reasoning power, our creativity, our ability to use language, our ability to sense moral distinctions and to make moral choices, that is, between right and wrong, and above all, our religious capacity. So he brings out a lot of those aspects of our inner man and what sets us apart from other creatures. Another Reformed theologian, Anthony Hokema, explains that as male and female, the human person is a social being. That woman complements man and that man complements woman. In this way, human beings reflect God, who exists not as a solitary being, but as a being in fellowship. And again, think about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They were in eternal fellowship with one another. They didn't need any other fellowship, but they desired to have fellowship with people. And it's, they created us and saved us to be in their family. And man and woman are created... It was not good for man to be alone. One of the reasons why is because he, he was in the image of God. He was created to be in fellowship. Now, some of God's traits are manifested more by women. And, of course, the flip side is true. Some are more reflected by men. We'll talk about that later, but not today. The Hebrew word, for example, you've heard me say this many times. The Hebrew word for compassion is from what word? Do you remember? You probably see it on the slide, right? Womb. 
Okay, because this compassion of God, this tenderness of God for his people, even his sinful people. It is like the tender care that a mom has for her baby. A key part of a woman's femininity is that she was created to be a helper for the man. And some people look at that and they say, "Okay, well, yeah, you're secondary, right? Because you're not the lead, you're the helper. Well, I remind you that all three members of the Trinity in Scripture are called helper. Our helper. Okay, so that is not in any way a slight when a woman is called her husband's helper. God's unfailing love is expressed as a nursing mother. See that tenderness as well. God protects his people like a mother bird protects her chicks by taking them under her wings. Jesus even used that. Remember, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You know, I wish that I could gather you as a hen gathers her chicks and protects them. Those are feminine characteristics, if you will, or at least they for us, for us to understand them. We see them as more feminine uh, than those of us that should be and are more masculine. God is not feminine, but feminine traits reflect parts of his character. He created us that way, not because he's feminine, because he's not. Okay, He created us this way because he wanted mankind, men and women, to reflect his character. And there's some character traits that he, he gave the emphasis to men and masculinity, and then women and femininity, he gave other traits to be more obvious. And so it is in those ways, some of which we've detailed there, that a woman manifests important aspects of God's image. I mean, who doesn't love compassion, God's compassion, you know, and things like mercy and that tenderness, that tender love. Um, We as sinners, we find those very precious. You know, yes, we love the things that we consider more masculine, his sovereignty and his power. And, but, and there's not one that's necessarily better than the other. It's just, why would we not want to have those? And so we know them in part because God has put them more particularly into the image, his image in women. Now, you know, and we're not going to get into the debate about this, but uh, when... Adam and Eve sinned. They chose to rebel against God. We call that the fall. Okay. Well, the fall had an unfortunate and big impact on the image of God in us. Some people say that, oh, it was completely, you know, eradicated at that point. It was completely ruined, not even left. That's not true because the rest of Scripture talks about, even in Genesis, all the way through, at least through James, where it talks about man being in the image of God and how God takes, for example, takes seriously the, the, you know, Sins of the tongue against uh, other human beings in God's image. Murder, God takes it seriously because we're in the image of God. It Sin has marred God's image in us, but it is the image is still there. And the beautiful thing to remember is that at salvation... Remember we saw this in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. How God, when, it, when He saves a person... He brings them new life, gives them new life, that he has recreated 
them in his image. Remember, there was those passages. It talks about he has recreated man and woman who are saved in his image. And then those passages talk about how he is in the process of renewing us so that we more accurately, over time, more and more show the image of God as we were intended to in the beginning. We're being renewed to better reflect his image. Second, Scripture holds women in high regard. And this is both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, feminists claim that the New Testament corrected the false, some false teaching about women in the Old Testament. So that, you know, Jesus had to come along and say, okay, the Old Testament, there were a lot of things that were wrong there, and I've got to correct those, you know, and the treatment of women, you know, in the Old Testament was wrong. But that isn't true. The Old Testament didn't have a low view of women the way feminists try to say. In the Old Testament, God values women. He values the life of the women that he created in his image. And just a few things. Women could take the Nazarite vow. I mean, this was a spiritual vow to set yourself apart unto God for a time. Women could take that vow. Women were responsible... And this is a key element, I'm going to come back to it, but if you matter, God holds you responsible. If He doesn't hold you responsible, you don't matter, okay? Women matter, so God holds them responsible just like He holds men responsible, okay? He holds women responsible for loving God with all of their heart, soul, and strength. Deuteronomy 6. He he holds them responsible for teaching God's word, God's ways to their children. If you doubt that, they are a part of here, O Israel. They They were a part of Israel. God answered women's prayers in a number of places. The testimonies of godly women are in Scripture for our example. And you've got women, you know, Sarah and Ruth and Esther and plenty of others. Their testimony is recorded in Holy Scripture for us, for us to to read and be encouraged by it. God also takes seriously how children treat their mothers. A number of places in the Proverbs talk about that. God also wants children to bring joy to their mother. So, you know, what mom doesn't want that, right? You know, for my kids to bring joy to me. Proverbs twenty three twenty five says, Let your father and your mother be glad, talking to children, and let her rejoice who gave birth to you. Also, children should be disciplined when they do wrong. Otherwise, Proverbs twenty nine fifteen says, A child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. God takes it seriously how children treat their mothers. And then, of course, you know, we, Proverbs 31, the last part of that chapter, it praises the excellent wife. And that was the product of King Lemuel's... Uh, what his mom had taught him is a sample of what she had taught him. And we'll go through that. I plan to, to go through Proverbs after we finish Ephesians, so in about six or seven years, but no. <clears throat> Shouldn't be that long, but we will, we will get to that. Of course, it's at 31. It's at the end of Proverbs, right? So, you know. <clears throat> well, so that's, that's just a brief look at the Old Testament, how the Old Testament held women in high regard. Now, Granted, 
the Jews, just like a lot of eras of Christianity and Christians, didn't always do that right. They, they blew it a lot of times. You can read, remember, we went through the minor prophets. And, and who were among those that were oppressed? Women, right? And treated badly. Uh, but that was they went against the Old Testament teaching, is what I'm saying. Jesus also held women in high regard. He treated them as persons. He addressed women directly in public. That was not normal then. He spoke to women respectfully and tenderly. And then <clears throat> he allowed women to minister to him. They served Christ by anointing him for burial. They prepared meals for him and his disciples. Some of them provided financial support. Some of them opened their homes for ministry. And then, this is amazing, and we a lot of times don't realize the significance of it, but women were privileged to be the first to witness Jesus resurrected. Right? We forget that. And, you know, if you think about it, in that day, the testimony of women that wasn't held in high regard. They, you, you, you wanted to have, you know, two or more men you know, giving testimony in court. You didn't want a woman. That, that's how they thought about women, again, outside of Scripture. But Scripture, God, in this, wants to show us how highly He holds women, what high regard, and, and, and so the first who were privileged to see the resurrected, the risen Christ, were women. Jesus rebuked hard-hearted husbands. He called them to treat their wives consistent with God's original design. You think about when they were talking to him about divorce. You know, what, what different ways, you know, reasons can we get a divorce, you know. And, and, and they wanted him to say, because that's what the Jews were believing at that time, basically for any cause. And Jesus said, well, Moses allowed you to do that because of your hard hearts. It was a rebuke to them. And he says, that's not how it was in the beginning. Go back to Genesis, what we read. When he taught on divorce, Jesus treated women as persons and not property. So I talked about a minute ago holding women responsible. He holds... Um, both men and women responsible for their own actions, their own sins, because they both matter, okay? You know, I know we, we would like to joke and, and, and just kind of in a silly way to say, yeah, it'd be great if God didn't hold men accountable, and the women would say the same thing, right? It'd be great if He didn't hold us accountable. But in reality, we don't want that because then we wouldn't matter. We both matter, and we're both held accountable for our sin. For example, Jesus rebuked men for treating women as objects of lust in Matthew 5. But Paul also held women accountable when they dress like objects of lust. And in 1 Timothy 2.9. Feminism, and the reason I bring this up is it's an example, but feminism insists that women ought to be able to dress however they want, regardless of the impact it might have on the men around them. I've heard this said, and I've heard it said in conservative churches. They're, that's where one of the ways feminism has made its way even into our churches. 
that women should be able to dress however they want. But Jesus and Paul held both women and men equally accountable for their sins because they both matter. And he wants them both to think of others more importantly than themselves. Third, God has assigned women an irreplaceable role in his program. He's assigned women an irreplaceable role in his program. What I mean by that is we can't say, well, you know, if, you know, the men just kind of do everything in the church and ministry and all, we'd be fine. Not at all. We would not be following God's program. He has a role for women, and we men aren't called to do that, and we shouldn't do that role. I plan to say more about marriage and motherhood later in Ephesians when we get there. And, and I want to say before, I, I'll talk just briefly about uh, marriage and motherhood here in a second. But I want to point out there, there are exceptions when God ordains, he ordains some women that, for, for some women to not marry. And he ordains for some women who maybe even marry to not have children. He ordains for some women to no longer have husbands when they're widowed or divorced. Some who are single, at least for now. There are exceptions, but I want to show you that both fall within the program that God has for godly women. A godly woman glorifies God by fulfilling the role that he gave her. She glorifies God by fulfilling the role that he gave her, and that is a significant role. And I think a lot of times we we sometimes downplay that, that role, and we shouldn't. For most women, and again, I said, as I said, there were exceptions. For most women, this means helping her husband. And for her raising her children to love God, for her part in that, teaching them to love God. But all women are to pursue a rich and fruitful or faithful ministry, a rich and faithful ministry in the home life that she creates, the home life that she manages, so that she can provide a context for spiritual life and ministry, for the spiritual life for her and her husband if she has one, her and her children if she has children, and for, for their ministry, her ministry, to others. For some, this is, is hospitality, at least at some level, right? Creating a home life for those to flourish. A godly woman expresses God's image even if he ordains that she not have a husband or that she not have children. Uh, you remember Aquila and Priscilla. Priscilla it doesn't seem to have had children. From everything we can tell. There were widows who faithfully served the saints. So they no longer had husbands. But they faithfully served. All women are called to a vibrant spiritual life and a faithful ministry. They're called to a vibrant spiritual life and a faithful ministry. And what I want to drive home there is that, um, you know, like when we were, when I was in seminary, uh, there were really kind of two different groups of students in some regards, okay, in this one regard. 
where there were some of us who, you know, all the guys in seminary, you know, we loved hashing out all the, you know, the different issues and, and problems with, you know, uh, the understanding of the Bible and this and that and going back. You know, we were all into that. But our wives fell into two groups. There were some wives who wanted to be right there with us, you know, and listening and contributing. And, you know, and they wanted to talk with other women about the things of God. And, and then there were others who they were like, I don't really have an interest in talking about those things. I don't mean that they had to get into all the controversies and stuff. But to talk about the things of God, to want to talk about the things of God. And I wanted to emphasize that every woman is called by God to have a vibrant spiritual life of her own, to love the things of God, to study the Bible, uh, and to grow in her understanding of the Word. And to do that in the context along with her husband, but also if she's married and with other women. And then to have a faithful ministry. And she may have some different ministry categories. And so on the next slide, you'll, you'll see here uh, examples of, of different uh, ministry categories that women in different life circumstances may have. And so the, the first one on the left is the one that's kind of, you know, we see, we think typical, right? So she's to serve Christ. She's to serve the saints. Uh, there's the work that she does in ministry in the home, uh, this her spiritual life, okay? But then she also may be a wife and a mom, okay? And and so those are just some of the different ways in which that woman is is called to serve God, okay? But by God's design, she may not be a wife and a mom. That just means that those categories are going to look a little bit different, and whether this is a, a widow, a woman who's been divorced, a woman who is still single, um, whether she plans to stay single or plans not to, either way, there may be some other things that fill in where wife and mom had been, wife and or mom. You know, things like ministry of prayer, having a particular ministry of, of praying for the saints and praying for the church and praying for God's work in the world. Bringing people to Christ. Discipleship, discipleship, counseling, mentoring, those kinds of things. One is just as beautiful as the other. It is to God, and it ought to be to us. We shouldn't look at one as more beautiful than the other. Think about a few examples, again, from Scripture. God used Abigail a woman who is married to a fool, to give wise advice to David. Mothers taught their children. That included teaching their sons. It wasn't like, okay, you know, women, you, you teach your daughters, but we need to, you know, get a tutor in here, or only dad can teach the son. No. You read Proverbs, and it says many times there that these sons, are that's mainly who he's talking to, you need to listen to your mother, her teaching, and submit to her teaching. And to appreciate it and learn. So these these moms were teaching their sons, in addition to their daughters, sons who would be heads of their families. And some of them, potentially, would be leaders in government, in society, um, military. 
Sons are told in Proverbs, do not forsake your mother's teaching. And talking about the girls, we should place a high value on a girl's education. I mean, how is she to teach her children, including those sons that are going to go on as leaders? How is she to teach them if she doesn't have a robust education? Now, I'm not saying that means this, this, and this, okay? This is going to look different for each family, and you need to work that through. But what I'm saying is it isn't just a matter of, you know, well, just teach her how to cook and clean, okay? Because if she's going to be teaching her kids... At least, the very least, what Deuteronomy 6 calls her to do, to teach her kids to love God, she needs to know God's Word. And her education has to at least include that. Because she is going to be teaching her children. In the New Testament, Jesus showed that every Christian woman and girl should be interested in learning biblical truth. And that's a bit of a rebuke to those those gals that I was talking about, some of the seminary wives. They just they had no interest at all in talking about the Bible and theology, and that isn't biblical. That's not God's call for a woman. They must be interested in learning biblical truth. Uh, you know, Jesus commended Mary because she wanted to learn from Jesus. You know, just like those those wives that wanted to be there, you know, sometimes a prof would be there. We'd kind of, you know, you know, surround him and, you know, pick his brain and, you know, t- let's talk about this. And and some of the wives and, and yes, Connie was in one of those. Otherwise, I'd be in big trouble right now. But she was one of those that wanted to be right there. Right. And, and wanted to be learning. We sometimes beat up poor Martha uh, in that episode. But later on, um, Jesus taught Martha the precious truth about himself being the resurrection and the life and teaching about the resurrection. And then we have her confession of faith recorded in Scripture. He said, do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. We have Martha's confession of faith. It's beautiful. It's an encouragement to all of us. And Jesus didn't think about women the way most of the men around him in his day thought. Even religious men. He thought about them the way he has always thought about them. He, remember, Jesus is the creator. He created them in his image. All three members of the Trinity were involved in creation. He created them in his image, and he has always thought about them highly in that regard. Older women are to teach younger women, Titus 2. Priscilla ministered beside her husband, Aquila, in one-on-one ministry to correct Apollos. He, He had some misunderstandings about the gospel. And Luke tells us that together, and Paul held them in high... Together they served in correcting the doctrine of Apollos. That doesn't mean that she was a teacher in the church, and feminists try to go there, and all. Well, we'll get to that, okay? But she still, she and her husband together corrected this brother and, and helped him to understand the gospel rightly. Uh, Priscilla and other women, especially the two problem ladies in Ephesians 4. Uh, they're called fellow workers. 
Well, I want to close with an encouragement to you ladies from Elizabeth Elliot. She appealed to the godly, um, the godly testimony of Jesus' mother, Mary. You remember where Mary sat when she was told she was going to, you know, have Jesus. Okay, may it be to me as you've said. So she says, femininity receives. It says, may it be to me, and this is with Mary, may it be to me as you have said. It takes what God gives. A special place, a special honor, a special function and glory, different from that of masculinity, meant to be a help. In other words, it is for us women to receive the given, as Mary did, not to insist on the not given, as Eve did. I like how she put that. That's God's call for women. God has given women a high calling. And femininity, the good word, is to accept that, to receive that as Mary did. This is the calling. Don't ever feel like you're less than because the world says, unless you become like a man and you can achieve whatever a man achieves, that's the only way you can be happy. It's the only way you can be fulfilled, valued. That is not true. That is a lie of Satan. Because he knows how God wants to use you women in his kingdom. I've given you a lot of examples of, of, of how he has used women in his kingdom for centuries. And, and we'll have a lot more to say as we move through Ephesians 5 and 6. But I want to encourage you, receive his calling. The one he has given to you. You know, like what MacArthur said at the beginning, you know, if you ever think being at the top of the pile in control of everything is that's the best place, talk to anyone in leadership. We'll tell you that it's not always, you know, uh, rainbows and sunshine. Okay. It's an illusion to think that that's somehow better, and it's not. Well, as we come to the Lord's table, I want us to think about go shifting there. God holds women in high regard, yes. And you know, the most obvious way we know that, the most obvious thing about that, is that He died for women. He paid for the sins of women. He died for those He loved. Men and women. Jesus wants both in his family. He wants men and women in his family to be with him forever and ever. And so, as he saves us one by one, men and women, he is making us to be co heirs according to his promise. So let's think about this, that Jesus, the love of Jesus, he died for sinners, male and female, because he loved us. And let's think about that as we partake of the Lord's table.